Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Good Culture, a company making naturally fermented dairy products, including my favorite, their cottage cheese. This is a food I loved as a kid, and I stopped eating it when I realized what was hiding in most brands. But my love was reignited when I found Good Culture. It has 19 grams of protein in every single served cup and is low carb, keto, gluten-free, and gut-friendly. They even have lactose-free varieties. And Good Culture's cottage cheeses are the ultimate protein-packed addition to breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You can mix it into a bowl of oats, spread it on some toast, or even enjoy it on its own as a light snack. And if you've got a bit of a sweet tooth, their low-sugar fruit-on-the-bottom cottage cheese is amazing. It only has 3 grams of sugar and 15 grams of clean protein. Good Culture is a certified B Corporation, and they donate 1% of all profits to support regenerative agriculture. So ditch the yogurt and the really high sugar snacks and head to goodculture.com forward slash wellness mama to save on your next purchase. They have a coupon there just for our listeners. You can also find their products at Whole Foods, Sprout, Target, Publix, Kroger, and many other stores. Here's another tip. Check out their cultured sour cream varieties while you're there. And again, that website is goodculture.com slash wellness mama, G-O-O-D-C-U-L-T-U-R-E.com slash wellness mama. This podcast is sponsored by Haya Health Children's Vitamins. That's H-I-Y-A. Did you know most children's vitamins are basically just candy in disguise? Often they're filled with two teaspoons of sugar, a lot of chemicals, artificial flavors or colors, or gummy junk that kids should never eat often with synthetic forms of vitamins that aren't even that bioavailable for our kids. But Haya is different. They're made with zero sugar, zero gummy junk or fillers or additives, and it tastes great. So it's perfect even for picky eaters. Haya is designed to fill the most common gaps in modern children's diets and to provide full body nourishment for our kids with a taste that we won't have to fight them on. They are manufactured in the USA with globally sourced ingredients that are each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption and quality verified. Haya arrives straight to your door on a pediatrician-recommended schedule, and your first month comes with a reusable glass bottle that your kids can personalize with stickers, and then every month comes in a no-plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins, which means Haya isn't just great for your kids, it's also good for the environment and reduces waste. You can learn more at hayahealth.com slash wellnessmama, and the code wellnessmama will save you 50%. So again, that's H-I-Y-A health.com slash wellnessmama. Make sure to use the code wellnessmama to save 50%. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And this episode is with Aaron Alexander, who is a popular past guest and now a return guest. And his specialty is movement and especially very certain types of movement that make you adaptable and strong uh, in various different ways. We actually go deep on a lot of different aspects of this today, as well as talking quite a bit about mindset and how our environment shapes us, not just how we shape our environment. He gives a lot of practical tips for optimizing your environment to best support your body and your mental health. And we also talk a lot about a lot of things we've recently read and learned and have a lot of just general advice. It's always so fun to record with him. So without further ado, let's join Aaron. We're here. We're here. All right. Welcome to my living room. We're sitting, we're sitting on the floor. Yeah, it's lovely. And welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for making this happen again. This is awesome. I'm excited to chat with you on lots of directions. But first, before we went on air, you mentioned you just finished reading The Four Agreements again. 
I did. And I would love to hear your impression of that. And I, this is a book that's very often recommended by guests. So for anyone who hasn't read it, what were your impressions and what stood out most to you or what stayed with you most maybe? I think that books like that, you've, you've probably heard like it's a more relevant decision to read one or two or a few books quite deeply instead of just like you know, consuming all of the books in the world to, to prove to people that you're that you're really smart. I think The Four Agreements is one of those books that if you, you literally could just pretty much base your life around those really simple four agreements and some of the basic fundamentals from it um, and integrate that in your daily life. So what I, I really liked about it is I liked the simplicity of it, um, the brevity of it, and uh, just that it's like a simplification of how easy it can be to do this life experience. And I think we, we can easily overcomplicate ourselves and make things feel like it's like so complex and complicated to get things done or be a good person or be successful. And what I liked about it is, is it really is, is like draws it back. It's like, tell the truth, you know, do your best. Uh, what's the other one? Don't take anything don't personally. Don't take anything personally. That's a big one right now. I feel like huge yeah and don't make assumptions yeah those two could do a, for society quite a bit of good right now i feel like it's crazy you know within that just like those little subtle details you know in each moment that i, I think that you know i've i certainly feel like i could have read that book uh, you know 15 years ago and it would have been supportive there's certain moments like i don't think i quite did my best in that moment like i, I kind of was like whatever it was, some emotional thing. I wasn't into the leadership at the moment or whatever thing it was. And I kind of just like slacked off. And I'm like, I think if I just continued to ride that mantra of like, you know, no matter the scenario, do your best, you know, and no matter the scenario, tell the truth, you know, and that, that baggage and that weight of wrapping ourselves up in, in all the various different forms of, of lies that we may have been wrapped ourselves, may have wrapped ourselves up in maybe since we were little kids Maybe we're telling ourselves lies that we don't even realize, you know? And so I think like life can be this unpacking of getting deeper and deeper into this state of truth and authenticity. And, you know, that leads to ease, you know, and ease would be the inverse of, of dis-ease. And then maybe you get into the weeds of what that means exactly. So yeah, good book. It talks a lot short. about that. Like the stuff that we get programmed with early in childhood that we don't necessarily choose that becomes part of our, the way we operate and how to, these kind of four simple things help you re-anchor and choose a pattern forward that's not the ones we were just raised with. And it's interesting when I, I read it about once a year as well, and it always strikes me as it's so simple and everything in it is largely like common sense. Like you read it, you're like, well, yeah, but it's also so profound in its simplicity too. Most things are like most things that are, are really impactful. You know, Einstein and lots of people have various different quotes along the lines of if you can't teach it to like a third grader or whatever they said, then you don't really understand the subject. You know, and I think that's if you wind things back, and I think that's why people resonate with your work. Um, you know, that was the function of you know, kind of like the mantra of most of the things that I do is, is figuring out how do we take these seemingly complex topics and make them be digestible, meaningful bites that people can integrate into their present moment. You know, and I think that that's the case with most things. If there's something that's, I mean, this is a really obvious one with like the healthcare system. You know, that's like if you really wind things back to what the human organism really needs to be healthy and fulfilled and have adaptability and longevity and strength and flexibility and all those things, it's like the list is not that long. It's like the four agreements. It's like there's pretty much four things. 
know? <laughs> like expose yourself. I'm kind of making the four things up right now in the moment, but like generally speaking, probably most people listening to this would agree. It's like you need to be outside. Mm-hmm. You need to get adequate exposure to sunlight. It'd probably be extra bonus points to get maybe the full spectrum of light, including all of the hours, not villainizing any one specific moment, but especially gathering some of that infrared stuff in the morning and then around sunset you know, have varied temperatures. All this is encapsulated into nature. Like just go into the nature. Nature will do the thing. Yeah. You need to have meaningful relationships, you know, and a part of that comes into like telling the truth, you know, in the four agreements, not making assumptions about your relationships, not taking things personally within your relationships, you know, having purpose, you know, like what, what gives you, what's the, what's the point of you waking up each day? You know, I think that, that that's something that's like, yeah, like am I living a life that is, it actually feels worth living? Or am I just kind of going through the motions? And if I'm just kind of going through the motions, living out maybe somebody else's dream or somebody else's suggestion or influence, That's there's no sustainability and longevity in that. And at some point, you know, like the the the, the house of cards, you know, it's, it's probably going to collapse because there's just no foundation there. You know, and then suddenly you go through this midlife crisis thing. It's, it's like, it's, it's the longevity part that I think is really immensely important. And, and the, I think the only way to have longevity is to keep things pretty simple, you know. And so whatever your four things are, I know that was a wandering way of not really saying anything particular. But the simplicity of, of uh, or health is much simpler than what I think we make it out to be, culturally speaking, and from a consumer perspective. Absolutely. And at least that idea of you can get 80% of the way there with those simple, very often free things that go back to essentially nature and relationships. And I think it's easy to get swept into the idea of all these fancy like biohacks and supplements. And those all, I think, have their time and place. But if you don't have those foundational things, Mm -hmm. those things won't be as effective anyway. That's that's funny. The the one thing I didn't say is the thing that like my, my, the entirety of my book and podcast and brand and everything represents is, is, is movement. You know, so that's the other part of it. But then movement is actualized in all of those other things you know so as you're expressing out your purpose as you're at work as you're communicating with your relationships you know you're moving yourself into those relationships maybe you go out dancing with someone you know your body language your capacity to have empathy with someone else that's a product of being able to kind of uh, move yourself into the position of that person to be able to feel where they're coming from Sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> no, that's a great deviation. And ironically, um, I, so every year I do something that scares me, which mm-hmm. is just part of my getting out of my comfort zone yeah. challenge to myself. And this year it's dancing because that's, it used to be singing. That used to be the most terrifying thing I could think of. So I did that. And this year it's going to be dancing. So I'm figuring out what that's going to look like. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a... Um, but movement. There's, um, what is it? I think it was research from Albert Einstein College. They found that dancing was... Um, out of the various different type of mediums of like, you know, crossword puzzles and, you know, different kind of like brain games and such, or like walking, cold exposure. I don't know if they did that, but, you know, s- stuff like that. They found that dancing was the most impactful medium within that that study that they found to be preventative for dementia and cognitive decline and, and things of the sort for elderly. So it's that there's a lot of variables there. One, dancing, harmonizing your body to music, um, that's major. You know, you're, to, that, to integrate the way that you're moving in all of your appendages and your joints and finding rhythm to this outside sound coming in, that just is such a complex equation. And then you compound that with connecting with another person. Now, okay, I'm going sound, 
okay, now I'm leading the person or I'm following the person. You know, it's so much more complex than just like going, you know, putting some heavy metal music on your, your earbuds and just doing bicep curls. Buh, buh, <laughs> buh. Like that, that, that dance, it just integrates the part so effectively well. And then it also, you know, the other part of it is like the joy factor and some of like the more, I think, magical parts of connecting with another person that we have these isolated research studies that, you know, isolate specific factors and variables. And then we, you read something in the New York times about it or goes on PubMed. You're like, aha, this is it, (laughs) you know, but in fact, I think life is dramatically more magical. And then we kind of contain little isolated parts of it. We try to hang our hat on those parts exclusively, you know, but that's, it's just an interesting thing to think, oh, like all of the things that we would do that would be specifically brain-based, just that act of, of dance seems to trump the whole thing. So says Albert Einstein College. It's pretty interesting. Well, that's an encouragement to do it because everything else like in the chess world or Rubik's Cube or brain games, I feel yeah. safe in those worlds and dancing's the out of the comfort zone one. But I think yeah. at least for me, and this might resonate with some people listening, I think it has part to do with having been like disconnected from my body for so long that I feel like it's like a relearning of how to, like you said, to harmonize with the music or how to connect with someone else because that requires the body part. And I got really good at the brain part for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like relearning that as part of like my post-trauma adjustment. But I think this is something I've heard a lot from a lot of people about is that kind of disconnection from the body Mm -hmm. and relearning how to get back in our body, whether it be from trauma or whether it be from, for the moms listening, childbirth, which makes your body somewhat, you know, you carry a baby, you nurse a baby, your body's not 100% your own for a long time. And often I feel like women can get detached from that communication with their own bodies. And I also saw firsthand like how much somatic work can help us like reintegrating with the body can actually help the mental spiritual side of processing as well. And I think movement is a key here as well. So I'd love to kind of delve into that with you of like, what are some of the ways we can start learning to reconnect? Yeah. I think the first thing, I mean, that's so beautifully said. And I think the first thing is being willing to listen to what your body is saying, which sounds like, Oh boy, you know, it's like woo woo kind of, kind of language, but I mean, your body says so much maybe you have inflammation, you know, maybe you have some type of irritable bowel situation going on. Maybe you have some fuzzy stuff on your tongue. Maybe your eyes are bloodshot. Maybe your back hurts. Maybe you have some joint dysfunction. You know, there's all of these different things. Maybe you have acne, you know, all the things that you've, you've covered so exceptionally well, your body is, it's on your team. You know, so if it's communicating something to you that you may deem to be unfavorable, it's just its way of communication saying, hey, we need to make it an adjustment. You know, so as opposed to coming from a place of, okay, we need to, um, you know, it's like your, your kids, your kids say something to you that you don't really, maybe they, they speak another language. They come back in speaking gibberish. You know, it's like, dang, little Mary comes back in. She's going, she's just in her room going, I don't understand it. It's annoying. It's obnoxious. Like, what do we do? Do we cut off little Mary? Do we lock her in a room? Like, do we, do we get her meds? Like, what do we do? You know, and, and then probably a more empathetic, caring, mature parent would be like, maybe we, you know, spend some time with this habit or this trait or with little Mary. And we kind of like see like what's behind her doing this thing that seems really obnoxious and annoying and like inappropriate, you know, and I think we can do that with our body and, and with specific, you know, symptomology of my, my experience going from the lens of kind of actually listening to it and, you know, being respectful of the stuff that the body is saying, but then also from a, a lens of like, if you're feeling anxious, 
you know, or if you're feeling stressed out, you know, that's something that I experience with some level of, of regularity, you know, I'll have some, something will come up or, you know, whatever it may be that will cause me to have this sensation of like, I don't know, like, a, like an anxiety in my belly kind of feeling, you know, like, Oh, like I gotta like go, I don't know where to go exactly or what to do or where to put my, my energy or attention, but like, Oh, I got to do something, you know, or relationships are an amazing opportunity for this to kind of present certain triggers that might make you feel a certain way, maybe anxious, maybe avoidant, you know, any of those things. And so to take those as opportunities, you know, like never waste a trigger is an idea that I think is interesting. Take those opportunities and say like, okay, where do I feel this in my body right now? So that anxious attachment style they might be having with a boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, partner, if you, instead of just doing the thing, you know, and jumping on Hinge or Tinder or sending messages that you might regret or whatever it may be, actually take a moment and go in it's like what is this feeling that i'm experiencing right now and and is there a location for it in my body and this gets into like peter levine's work and somatic experiencing or um, eugene gendlin is another great resource for this and is um, his work's called the felt sense and it's going in and, and feeling exactly ob- observing exactly where we're feeling certain sensations in our body and that you know that anxiety a person might feel in their stomach for example going in sitting with it instead of running around it sitting with it and saying okay does it that sensation, does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Does it have a density? Does it have a volume? Does it have a sound? You know, and actually, and then from there, once you do kind of create a little bit of separation of like, huh, that feeling that I was pushing away, you know, and like, I found it discomfortable, so I just kind of shut it out. Suddenly, it's not the entirety of me. I'm not that feeling. I'm, I'm actually able to witness that as like a thing in my body. And then it's like, huh, okay, well, well maybe you can even ask that thing a question, you know, it's like, what are you, you whatever questions work for you, what are you doing, why why are you here, what are you, what are you trying to tell me, you know, and and just being with the thing, and now it's like, okay, now we're talking to little Mary, you know, or being with little Mary, as opposed to just like shutting it out, and so I think that's, you know, more of like a psychosomatic type lens, you know, of, of movement and how to tap into the body, but I think that's a great starting place, you know. Yeah, and I think two really important things that you just said is that like sitting with it versus judging it. I think often we're quick to jump into the, like any kind of pain, anger, fear, we're like, this is bad and put place a label on it and then try to right. fight it yeah. versus accepting it and feeling it yeah. often ironically helps it pass more quickly. Yeah. And, and also I think language is so important. Like I, I often hear people say like, Oh, I am angry or I'm afraid. And right. instead of, I, I'm it's very, like, who are you exactly? Right. <laughs> like it's like, be very cautious. The statements that you put behind the words I am, cause that's a powerful oh, statement. Yeah. And so instead of I'm angry or I'm afraid, I'm, I am experiencing, or I feel anger mm-hmm. at the moment. Like instead of associating our identity with that emotion, mm-hmm. like you said, stepping back and separating it. I think for parents listening too, this is a really helpful thing to do with kids, especially when they're young and they're having trouble understanding when they're having all these big emotions is giving them the space to step back and ask them, help them walk through like, where are you feeling this yeah. and what color is it? And can we give it a name? Oh, yeah. Kids love giving it a silly name and then it's now not them. And then they can realize like, oh, I'm not this temper tantrum. Yeah. And they learn start to have those tools and and the more clarity with which we can name an emotion i feel like also helps it help us understand it and then let it go when we're able instead of just like lumping everything under one category of like anger yeah it's like there's so many more detailed words beyond that figure out where it's coming from and what it feels like and where it is in your body and that's you know going back to the the four agreements book don miguel ruiz that's his name right um he describes this as this kind of the stories that we tell our kids and that we're we're told 
um, as domestication, you know, and, and, you know, my lens more from like the movement realm, you know, and like the Align Method book is, you know, that's a book that I just, you know, at some point we'll probably get into like that specifically. A big part of that is the domestication more from like a movement lens, you know, of how our, the modern mold that we exist in forms our bodies to be who we are you know, at least from like a postural perspective. And then that ties into the way we think and feel and relate in the world. But there's also the initial domestication of the stories that we, that we learn from our parents and what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, I think that a, a really like an elephant in, in the room within that is, is, you know, I think death is something that is kind of a weird, sticky, uncomfortable subject. I think sexuality is kind of like, oh, you know, it's like this, as opposed to it being, and there's, you know, lots of other ones, different, you know, just different judgments of some people. Like I remember growing up having some judgment around gay people. That wasn't me. You know, that was the culture that I grew up in. And if you see that throughout nature, there's homosexuality all over the place. Like some percentage of most, most creatures cruising around, there's some expression of homosexuality, you know, tendencies throughout that, you know, and, and, you know, just any, any of those different stories that we get. And then it's a process of, starting to parse out, okay, what is authentically me, you know, and then what is me, uh, and what are these domesticated kind of structures that I've been formed into, and are these structures to the, the, the support of my greater good, or are they limitation, you know, and we're continually reperpetuating all of this stuff with the words that we speak throughout the day. And so if you just start to come back and, and start to gain some level of, of maybe responsibility or sovereignty around the words that come out of your face uh, and just have like a general, like an audit of like, okay, like I'm saying, you know, my trauma, you know, or my anger, I'm angry or I'm sad, all of those things. It's like just taking a moment to reflect and say like, what is that? What am I, what does that mean exactly? You know, and I think that that's, yeah, I mean, words, words are just so immensely powerful. I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. And I think it's a conscious unpacking often as adults when we work at given some of those beliefs as children and as adults, we can then get to make the choice to start to unpack them. And that's the thing I've started doing consciously as well as at the beginning of each year, writing down things I am relatively certain I believe to be true. And then intentionally challenging myself on those things with the idea that it the very least I'm going to gain empathy and understanding for people who might have a different viewpoint by researching their viewpoint. And if I'm not right, I'd want to know that. Um, But it's like that constant unpacking. That's a a conscious process as adults. The the, the moralistic judgment of right and wrong, I think is, I mean, there could be a whole book just about that. And we kind of flippantly, but we, I mean like me and probably a lot of people flippantly throw around like, Oh, that's right, wrong, bad, good, you know, as though it's inherently, objectively is true that this idea or story or it may be is that and uh yeah i mean that that's like i think unpacking that and removing the the judgment i think that's one of the best things that uh, a parent could offer for a, a child is no matter what you bring to me i do not have judgment like i have acceptance of the thing it might not make me feel I don't have to like disassociate and bypass and just be like, no matter what you do, I'm like, woohoo, like, yay. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But this is such a safe space, a safe container, this house, you know, or our relationship that there is nothing that you could say or do that would lose that unconditional love that I have for you. And to be able to create that, 
I mean, that's just such an, an amazing place for the, the physical body to grow, you know, and the mind to grow. If a person feels insecure with their ability to tell their, their parents or maybe even, even tell themselves something, you know, then that will put a, you know, a knot in the body, in the mind. And then from that point where there was a, an unacceptance of ourselves or like a divorcing from ourselves at that moment, because we can't, we're not able, we don't have, our domestication doesn't allow us to accept this thing about ourselves at some point when we were 13, when we were 20, when we were five, whatever it was, then your life will you know, pretty much be probably a process of seeking out ways to unwind back to that point, find acceptance, and then move forward again. So the sooner that we can come from a place of like, no matter what you got, I'm here for it. With myself, with my family, with my friends. Man, what a cool world. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. that's a huge thing for parents. And I think that's, I make sure my kids hear me tell them every day, I love you unconditionally. There's nothing you can ever do that will change that. But the other important key is, and there's nothing you ever have to do to earn that or increase that. Yeah, It already is unconditional. And that was the part I felt like I didn't fully get. For me, I had to unpack that like fear of disappointment. I think a lot of us make it into adulthood, like with the fear of disappointing. You, do you think that was your my, Like the way my parent dynamics were, I was, I was afraid of disappointing them. And so I was like super type A in school and always had to like, because I got love through achievement. Right. And then I had to learn to like unpack that and figure out like, who am I separate of those things? And that goes back to some of that, like the four agreements and learning our inner selves more. Well, I think who you are, I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, who am I separate from my achievements? What do you, how does that question hit you? That's when I've been on a journey on for a couple of years, because I think the default is to want to answer like, oh, I'm a mom and I'm a writer and I'm a, and to yeah. answer with our titles. And if you take all of those things away, I think it, when you get into like Buddhism or a lot of these other traditions, you eventually arrive at the idea that the true answer to the question of who am I is just that I am at its core. Like I, but I think for me, there were other answers and it, it showed me a dichotomy within myself where I had tried to like figure out one or the other and assign myself a label. I realized, no, there actually is a beautiful dichotomy in all of us. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, I am gentle and strong and I am fierce and love. And like, I had to learn like, what are these pieces of me that yeah. are not achievements, but that are traits. And that was a long process of meditation and journaling. Yeah. You know the original meaning of persona? Mm. Persona is the, the, the masks that they would wear in, in um, I think it was Greco-Roman or Roman or maybe Greek times, but in I think it was Greek theater. They would wear these masks that were these, these conical masks to be able to project sound. Ah. So they're projecting essentially you know, their character out into the audience and they wear their persona in order to project this identity. Mm. And then when they get done with the the theater, they go back and, you know, the, the villain and the protagonist and, you know, all the extras and everything, they come back and they're all hanging out and they smoke a cigarette together, drink some wine. And we're like, oh, cool, like mask is off, you know, and it's like we navigate the world. You want to have the most um, well taken care of, you know, like, like, you, like you can worship the persona. You can, you know, you want to paint it really well and you want to maybe carve it out and you want to get like the angles right to project the sound just perfectly you know and really like like you know materialistically worshiping the persona is so cool and then within that acknowledging that this is a mask that you can take off and now i can put on the mother mask and now i can put on the ceo mask and now i can put on the beggar mask and now i can put on the victim mask and now i can put on the villain mask you know and i can wear all this throughout it but 
this is becoming a very like metaphysical conversation, but the, the uh, Ramdas, you can't have a conversation like that without mentioning Ramdas. Uh, he said, who you think you are is vulnerable and who you are is invulnerable, you know? And so operating from the, the awareness that who you are is not that mask and who you are can't be burnt, can't be twisted or destroyed or any of that. And who you think you are, your motherness can be taken away, mm-hmm. right? Your, you know, your, your village, like all of those different things, like it's, it's not can be taken away. It will be taken away. You know, and so investing some level of your your bandwidth to that other part, and then also, you know, being really effective with the various personas that we wear, and and realizing that they are a mask, and I have the fluidity to be able to flip between those different masks, but not. I think this is the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask. I think this probably is what it represents. The mask, if you wear it too long, it can start to consume you, and then you think that you're the mask. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And that like also recognizing, I would say that those masks carry, they serve the subconscious in some way, even the ones like the victim mask or like different ones like that may seem less than ideal. They serve our subconscious. They keep us safe in some way. Um, another oh, yeah. another it's way- a tool. This, it's like a boat. Exactly. And so rather yeah. than even judging those things as bad, we can recognize like, why were they here? And for me, undoing some of those was learning to thank them actually for having kept totally. me safe and for serving me. Um, another analogy that has come up for me in some therapy actually is the idea of the picture that we paint for our lives. I had a therapist call me out one time when I was having this inner turmoil about decisions and, and she was like, made me pause. And she's like, I'm going to challenge you. I don't think that you actually feel these feelings because you worry about the outcome because you have all these things in place where you know that's going to be fine. And it's not because you worry about your kids because you actually know they're going to be fine. This turmoil is coming because this is not the picture that was painted for your life that you're supposed to follow. And you're trying to paint your own picture and this is the first time you've had to do this. And that's mm. kind of that also unpacking that childhood domestication yeah. and learning to paint our own picture for our lives. And I think often we don't maybe have the opportunity to get there until some some area in adulthood. Um, have you interviewed Byron Katie yet? Twice. Okay, I thought you had. Yeah, we uh, did. She let me do acro yoga with her and flip her around and all the things. It's a very nice experience. That's incredible. Yeah. But I love her questions for that of, is this true? Yeah, right. Do I know true. for sure that this is true? And what would it look like if it wasn't true? And yeah. 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 That's the, and then where it becomes, I think, interesting is the physicality part of all this and the domestication, you know, we wear certain types of personas or identities in the way that we move and express. So if you ever have done, you know, theater or, or, uh, some maybe like improvisation or maybe stand up comedy or any of those things I know you're doing, you will, place your body into certain postural patterns in order to suggest or indicate certain sensations or emotions to evoke that in other people. Because we have this global, you know, international language of, ah, these facial expressions mean this. This postural pattern, if you, you know, you win a race, the same, no matter whether you're blind or deaf or Cambodian or a New Yorker, like you get done, you pass through that tape, bah, shoulders back, right? Your vital organs open up, your throat opens up. You might like look up, <sighs> hand, you know, you go into supination with the hand, like everything just wah, open. You know, I'm in this receiving place. I feel safe. I feel loved. I feel supported. The tribe loves me, right? And then you finish dead last and you, oh, you collapse 
through the finish line unless you had some like really excellent parenting or something and there's you're really truly you're not attached and there's no judgment about what this means and all that stuff and then it's just it's just a game you know first last whatever it is but i think there is something really valuable in, in in competition but within that the interesting thing is like like have we as a culture placed ourselves into a position globally, at least in Western culture, into a, a, a structural and I would say mental emotional position of, of collapse. You know, and so when you look at this like school systems, nothing against school systems or any kind of institution or anything like that. Um, but before a kid goes into grade school, like kindergarten, what's a kid do with their lives? What's a kid what's a kid's like natural innate biology suggesting to them? Like how do they live? They're climbing trees, they're eating poop, you know, they're like running real fast, they're rolling, they're building up a pile of leaves and splashing through it, you know, they're, they're, they're problem solving. They might be dancing, no judging, just like, oh, man, some music comes out, like, oh, I'm just dancing, you know, and then suddenly they, they get placed into this kind of new, new movement mold that it's like, what's well, not okay to to do that, you need to be able to sit and you need to be able to stare into this screen or into this book or pass this Scantron test, you know, and you need to be in your little cubicle place and you need to, we don't really give you much education around how to set your hips up for balance, you know, and ease and be able to like essentially set your physical body up for success. It's just kind of like stay in this chair. And if you can't stay in that chair, then there's now something wrong with you. Yeah, we're going to medicate And now we need to figure out a way to do that. You know, medication would be an option. Maybe, you know, if you need detention. So our solution for this is like, well, you're kind of ornery. You know, you seem like you really want to move. Um, How about detention? We're going to let you move less (laughs) to solve this problem. I know what we'll do. (laughs) (laughs) After school, especially in the wintertime, where now it's like you have this last little glimmer of sunlight to go out and be able to get that energy out and be able to express and do all the things that your innate biology has been suggesting you know, throughout the day, now we're going to cut that out and say, you got to stay in school a little bit longer, you know, and sit in that chair a little bit longer. We're going to break you. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, to sort of come from that, that lens. And that's not, I think the entirety of any school system or, or the fault of any single individual. You know, I think, you know, teachers, if you're a teacher, you probably really care about kids for the most part, I imagine, you know, but the system as a whole, I think it's like the ship is going statistically it's going in a direction of increased anxiety and increased depression and increased self-harm and increased obesity and there's a lot of beautiful things in western culture happening as well but statistically speaking if you're looking at the statistics that that i see it seems like the ship is going towards this direction of of you know dis-ease you know and so it's a conversation that i think is is not abundant enough and it's like, like just like the lowest hanging fruit it's like this glaring elephant in the room I don't know if you use glaring an elephant. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's at least low-hanging fruit uh, is the way that we're moving or the way that we are moved in a day-to-day basis. And the solution to that isn't more workouts, you know, or more, you know, Pilates or more whatever. I think the solution is saying, okay, like, what's the, you know, Bruce Lipton is another guy that I've I've done. I think we did we done just one podcast together, but he uh, wrote Biology of Belief. He's like one of the kind of pioneering thinkers around epigenetics and such. One of the things that he mentioned to me was when he was working with with cells in a, a petri disk. In order to to change the cell, he doesn't do anything to the cell itself. He changes the culture that it's it's residing within. You know, so you change the culture, change the shape of your living room, change the shape of your classroom, change the shape of your work, 
maybe start to bring some nature in to your domesticated space, you know, bring more plants in, bring more sunlight in, bring more kind of varied environments. Maybe have, you know, have a foam roller on the ground or maybe put like a, get some, some, uh, myofascial balls, or maybe you can bring like a, a cool rock into the house or something underneath your desk, you know, and you kind of step and you feel the different contours of your foot, whatever you do, bring that into your home, put a pull-up bar into your doorway. So you just naturally are just compelled to reach up and hang off of that thing. Then you're changing the culture of the individual and the individual just naturally organically kind of reshapes to fit it. I just think that's an interesting concept. Yeah. And I think a couple important things there is I agree with you. I think teachers inherently care a lot about kids and are for every teacher I know is an amazing person and they care about changing the world in a positive way. Just like almost every doctor I've ever met is an amazing person who cares about helping people's health. Yeah. And there's still problems within the existing systems. Yeah, it's not I don't think it's a fault of most individuals. It's it's the the general direction of the system. You know, and that's I think that another thing that's happening now, which I, I mean I, I would I would enjoy going deeper into the movement conversation, but another thing I think is happening that's a part of the movement conversation is our divorcing ourselves from each other, you know, and creating separation. Okay. I'm blue. You're red. You know, I'm vax. You're no vax. Well, and those are also those I am statements that people then let become part of their identity that get in the way of actual relationships and human connection. Yeah. And so when you have that disconnection or disassociation or separation, um, I mean, there's, there's some, there is value in, in boundaries, you know, it's not like we should just become like this aqueous amoeba, whole, which maybe, I mean, that's ultimately what we are, whether we realize it or not. Uh, but it is valuable. It, it does have value to, to maintain boundaries and identity and persona and all that. Um, but I think something that I personally see lacking in like the social media sphere and the news sphere is a lack of empathy and compassion and like seeing the world from someone else's shoes, like actually doing the work to do that. You know, and I think when you do that, like acknowledging that that person that you that you vehemently disagree with, if you lived their life exactly the way that they've lived their life, same parents, same environmental conditions, same age, same astrological whatever situation, birth date, like you would be that person. So when you're when you it's just starting to take that perspective of like, oh, okay, like we're so much more similar than we are than we think we are different, and so coming from that place of, of compassion, I think that that's we can jump over into like a physical conversation with that. It's like having disconnection in your body. You know, if your foot's not communicating with your knee, not communicating with your hips, your spine and your neck and your central nervous system isn't communicating with your enteric nervous system, you know, your, your organs and your viscera and your immune system and your cardiovascular system and all these systems. If there's, it's like suddenly the cardiovascular system thinks that it's the king you know, and the, and the, you know, whatever, uh, the lymphatic system is like, they have a war between each other. That's not a healthy body, you know? So it's, it's figuring out that, that integration, that connection, I think at an individual level, it's like, okay, well, what are the solutions for, for all this? And how do we prevent a civil war? You know, if that's even a possibility, I think the solution in an individual level, really, honestly, one, one of the, the spokes would be um, having a deeper relationship with one's own physical body because if you feel inherently disconnected in yourself and you feel kind of like that collapsed state or you feel kind of disorganized or you feel anxious or you feel depressed or you feel any of that you feel pain how does that affect the way that you relate to people 
how does that affect the way that you show up to that debate or show up to, you know, when you're, if you're a government official and you guys are making policies and you have this agonizing pain in your, in your back and you have this anxiety. And, you know, so I think the solution for, for all of us, one of the solutions that is tenable for every single person is to start to, you know, deepen their relationship with their own selves. Man, this is like a pretty spiritual metaphysical <laughs> conversation. <laughs> That was not my anticipation. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's go deeper on that. So what okay. are some of the ways people can start to reestablish that connection? I love how you talk about, you know, the environment shaping the body. Mm. And like we think we create our environments, but also our environments create us. And the idea of how like our posture can signal to our brain and our mental state, like our certain posture can actually change the way we feel about ourselves. Sure. And we can, those are things we have control over. But I feel like for a lot of people, movement kind of just gets swept into the exercise category. Totally. And that's what they think of as movement. Yeah. And I think there's so many areas we can all improve within our daily life in reintegrating movement as a lifestyle instead of a thing that we do that's on our checklist. And you talk so much about this and have such good tools for it. Yeah. What would be some of those baby steps on reconnecting with our bodies and making movement part of our lifestyle and changing our environment to support that. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the first thing, obviously, like right now, as we're recording this, it, uh, you know, we're sitting down on the ground like a bunch of kids, you know, so like any type of animal primate kid pre-kindergarten, this is how they'd record a podcast, <laughs> you know, or healthy, you know, flexible dancer or yogi, or like, you know, maybe a jujitsu person, martial artist, most of them, for the most part, would be like, oh yeah, let's just get throw some mats down, let's do it on the ground. So a person that is, they're running the operating system of, you know, flexible, supple joints, you know, and well-circulated bodies, naturally they're going to be drawn to spending a little bit more time in those, those ranges of motion where your hips are going below your knees, essentially. That position more talk of divorce has been largely divorced of Western culture as a whole, you know? And so elderly needing assisted living, the number one reason for that is, is they, is fall risk. You've, you've got all the way, all the way down to the ground and now you can't get up because there's such a, there's a chasm or a distance between your hips getting down below the height of the knees and all the way down to the ground. You haven't done it for X amount of time and now you can't do it anymore because those joints have calcified or the muscles have atrophied and it's just off the table now. So that in and of itself, it's like, oh my God, if we just continued that process of moving the way that, you know, inherently we all have moved forever and you go to any culture that's, that's, you know, pretty much not Western culture, they're still doing that. And suddenly fall risk doesn't exist and pelvic floor dysfunction is, is diminished and osteoarthritis in the hips and the knees is, you know, it's like not a conversation. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable how many billions of dollars and, you know, millions of lives that end up losing their own sensation of autonomy and sovereignty is, could just be refulfilled just by making that subtle tweak to say, oh, like maybe around your home, maybe get some floor cushions, maybe get like some Moroccan poofs, get a comfy rug, you know, like, like have an area like where you're sitting on this, this infrared mat thing now, you know, so it's like invites you to come down to the ground and just be there. So the culture shifts. Now, suddenly, you're taking your ankles and your toes and your knees and your hips and your pelvic floor and through this full range of motion because you just, you know, change your environment for the floor, the ground to be more inviting. The other thing, like I, I mentioned would be, and this is another chapter in the, in the book, it would be you know, hanging, like introducing some hanging into your daily life. And, you know, our shoulders are, are structured 
to hang more effectively than the shoulders of, of monkeys. You know, so you think of like monkey bars, monkey bars, a more appropriate name would be ape bars or, or human bars. You know, so if you look at the distance of our clavicle, the shape of our hands, like this is the whole, like this shoulder, no matter your, what your belief is, whether you believe in creationism or evolution or whatever you, whatever you think, like your shoulder is structured to hang off of stuff. And so that's a really simple one. You know, get a pull-up bar inside some doorway that you walk through with regularity. And just as you go through there, you know, in the, the book, I recommend 90 seconds per day in total. So that could be like 15 seconds, six times or whatever you do. And there's another book called Shoulder Pain by a guy called Dr. John Kirsch, who is an orthopedic surgeon. And he found that he suggested that 99% of the patients that he was seeing for some type of shoulder impingement syndrome that he would do surgery for could be completely healed and all the pain and everything reversed just by going through a basic hanging protocol each day. So if you're a person that has slouchy posture or has shoulder pain or has, you know, maybe just wants to have better respiratory capacity or even better cardiovascular function, like you open manually opening up space around that torso and around your lungs and, you know, the intercostals, the little muscles connecting your ribs, opening that space up, it changes the way you function at a, at, a, at a cellular level. Suddenly, it was this compressed space. Now suddenly it's, oh, you open up those cells to be able to, to, to breathe and circulate. And it literally changes the shape of, and, and structure of the shoulder girdle by being in that, in that externally rotated hanging position. Um, so those would be two things. I and mean, we can keep on going on and on. Opening your windows up. You know, getting natural sunlight. Open the windows up entirely so you're not blocking out some portion of that spectrum of light. You know, so when you have, when sun's passing through a window, you're not just getting that full spectrum. It's blocking out, it would depend on the window, but it's blocking out some portion of that light. Bringing plants into your house. Take uh, walking meetings. If you got a call, you know, do it outside. If you want to get really crazy, you could take your shoes off. If you want to look at it from like a bioelectric lens, uh, maybe take your shoes off and particularly be around like trees with deep roots, you know, it's like get put yourself near water, you know, a river, maybe near ocean, um, start to integrate natural sounds into your home environment or work environment, wherever it may be, you know, so you could get, you can just play some digital stuff or you maybe get like a little water fountain feature or something. You know, all of that sends the indication to your autonomic nervous system that you're safe, you're supported, there's no war happening. You know, when you're around clanging and abrupt noises and things of the sort, you know, it's our, our auditory system is continually sending feedback to our autonomic nervous system to suggest what's happening in our environment. You know, so if you're getting the feedback that's been infused into us for, you know, millennia, there's of, okay, like the, the crackling of a fire, like that, that sound, that was a very good crackling of fire <laughs> interpretation uh, or impression. Um, but that's, that's been infused in and it's been shown to cause your nervous system to calm down. <sighs> and those like red hues of light. Oh, and the, the red hues of light. <sighs> yeah. You know, so it's like, I, I think, it, so then overlay the kind of cultural predicament that I think that, that we're in, if you look at it from a statistical perspective, at least, I, I think the solution that most people look at is what we see in the, you know, the, the lobbied for, you know, billions of dollars of advertisements for pharmaceutical drugs. And, you know, these, these kind of more like 
symptom-based solutions. They're saying like, okay, cool. Like you have this feeling that you're whatever it may be, you're anxious or you're fat or depressed. It's like, we have a solution. It's in this pill as opposed to winding back is saying like, maybe there's a, you know, there's a chance that you're experiencing these situations because, you know, you're so far away from home. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, there's all sorts of interesting things of like aboriginals being taken out of, out of their place or native Americans or, um, Africans, you know, people like they're in their home, they're in their tribe, their jaw structures are great. Their teeth are great. Their blood pressure is great. You know, they don't, they don't, the concept of killing themselves is like, what do you mean? You know, or self-harm or self-hate. Like, what is that? And then suddenly you take them out, place them into captivity or domestication or whatever, the superior place, and suddenly issues start to manifest. No moralistic, right, wrong, good, bad. It's just, you know, I think there's there's deeper solutions than just reaching out for a pill. I agree. And I love actually that term captivity for like the way we've modern domesticated ourselves. This podcast is sponsored by Good Culture, a company making naturally fermented dairy products, including my favorite, their cottage cheese. This is a food I loved as a kid, and I stopped eating it when I realized what was hiding in most brands. But my love was reignited when I found Good Culture. It has 19 grams of protein in every single serve cup and is low carb, keto, gluten-free, and gut-friendly. They even have lactose-free varieties. And Good Culture's cottage cheeses are the ultimate protein-packed addition to breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You can mix it into a bowl of oats, spread it on some toast, or even enjoy it on its own as a light snack. And if you've got a bit of a sweet tooth, their low-sugar, fruit-on-the-bottom cottage cheese is amazing. It only has 3 grams of sugar and 15 grams of clean protein. Good Culture is a certified B Corporation, and they donate 1% of all profits to support regenerative agriculture. So, ditch the yogurt and the really high-sugar snacks and head to goodculture.com forward slash wellnessmama to save on your next purchase. They have a coupon there just for our listeners. You can also find their products at Whole Foods, Sprout, Target, Publix, Kroger, and many other stores. Here's another tip. Check out their cultured sour cream varieties while you're there. And again, that website is goodculture.com slash wellnessmama. G-O-O-D-C-U-L-T-U-R-E.com slash wellnessmama. This podcast is sponsored by Haya Health Children's Vitamins. That's H-I-Y-A. Did you know most children's vitamins are basically just candy in disguise? Often they're filled with two teaspoons of sugar, a lot of chemicals, artificial flavors or colors, or gummy junk that kids should never eat. Often with synthetic forms of vitamins that aren't even that bioavailable for our kids. But Haya is different. They're made with zero sugar, zero gummy junk or fillers or additives, and it tastes great. So it's perfect even for picky eaters. Haya is designed to fill the most common gaps in modern children's diets and to provide full body nourishment for our kids with a taste that we won't have to fight them on. They are manufactured in the USA with globally sourced ingredients that are each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption and quality verified. Haya arrives straight to your door on a pediatrician recommended schedule. And your first month comes with a reusable glass bottle that your kids can personalize with stickers. And then every month comes in a no plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins, which means Haya isn't just great for your kids. It's also good for the environment and reduces waste. You can learn more at hayahealth.com slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama will save you 50%. So again, that's H-I-Y-A health dot com slash wellness mama make sure to use the code wellness mama to save 50 percent
and also just for people who aren't watching this to call out a few things like your house is very floor friendly you have all these things to sit on but you and also I have, have a couch and you have a couch and right? I have a TV and I have like all this stuff is it's there very balanced. you don't need to be this wily like oh boy right you don't have to throw away every chair you own no it's a both and it's a both and but you also have a rebounder we used to have one as well as a coffee table and yeah. the kids could just bounce on it right or um, we have a gymnastics mat down our hallway right. and a climbing hangboard in the kitchen yeah because it's like especially with kids just put the stuff in their way they're going to use it yeah and you don't need another thing to do yeah you change the environment and you just be yes i think that's a huge key and that's that's the that's the key like that's the like that if there's anything that this incarnation of aaron you know hopefully represents like it's like that's the thing that i think is the most valuable thing is to acknowledge is like we don't need to do more you know we can we can kind of draw back a little bit make a few subtle shifts and then just be and see and, you know, be able to kind of revel in that change. And that's what I love about your approach too, is because you're not saying you need to do like deep back squats with heavy weight. You don't need to like do 25 pull-ups. You're saying just hang, which is a natural human movement mm, or like. Yeah. And sit- back squats are great. And back squats are and great all, too. Like all of it. Love working out. Love yeah. getting punched in the face, punching in the face, love kicking <laughs> stuff, love sprinting. But again, at both end. And for the people yeah. who are starting, it's like, if you are experiencing these things, just start with the baby steps, hang. Yeah. You don't have to do a pull up when you're hanging at first. Just yeah. hang. Pay attention to your breath. You know, and that's just something that you were talking about a bit was of of kind of like the I think the the chaos or complexity of having like so much stuff going on, you know, and finding that organization and finding just like that to be able to come back into like what's really happening right now. You know, because our mind typically it's like it's going all these different directions. Like, what's really going on right now? You're like, okay, right now, well, I got some pressure on my bum here, you know, sitting back and engaging with this person that I really appreciate, you know, we're kind of naturally attuning to each other, whether we realize it or not, maybe you could tap into that attunement, you know, I wonder, I wonder like, how's my, my breathing pattern? I bet you it's kind of similar to Katie's right now. You know, come back, okay, how is my breathing? Oh, I was breathing through my mouth. Oh, that's an indication that maybe I'm like nervous. Or maybe I've at some point learned some type of breathing pattern that's going to inherently make me feel more anxious and nervous and kind of throw off my whole physiological cycles. And you know, so to come back, it's like, oh, wow, I was breathing through my mouth. I was feeling a little anxious. I had you know, emphasis on the inhalation, maybe, you know, as all these things that would kind of cue me up to be more in sympathetic drive. It's like, I'm going to just come back and just notice a you know, slow exhalation through my nose. Okay. Oh, I feel a little different. Like, like just that little instance, suddenly you can start to k- take control of your physiology and take control of your mind. You know, and, and, and there's, there's a, I don't know where this, this research came from. We can look it up. It was, uh, there was some research around people doing dishes and uh, there was two different groups. One of the group was, uh, they were paying attention to like the weight of their feet on the ground and like the, the temperature of the water and like the glistening of the sunlight coming off the suds and the plate in their hands, just paying attention, you know? And then the other group was just washing dishes, you know, just getting through like doing his work. And the group that just, paid simple attention to what the heck they were doing, suddenly, you know, their blood pressure decreases and they feel like they're, they're, they do better in creativity tests and they feel a little bit more calm and relaxed just by simply saying like, what am I doing right now? You know, and like that question I think is just such a powerful thing. And I, I haven't, I don't think I've ever actually like said that or even really thought about that, but I think that's the thing is like, what am I actually doing right now? You know, it's an interesting thing. And then when you come into that, that place of, of attention, I think suddenly you kind of come into like, you know, alignment 
and then you know things start to change yeah and that idea of like how do i signal the body that it's safe we've mentioned that concept a couple times in this interview and it's things like the breathing and like the being present in the moment yeah and those natural light nature is a huge signal to the body that and how are you using your eyes you're being a conversation with someone where their eyes are like too piercing you know and you're like what is this person doing it's like freaking me out yeah. You know, and it's almost like they're like hunting you in a way, or there's a, maybe someone that's like, they're too spacey and it's like, this person is not paying attention to me. They don't, they don't care, <laughs> you know, like, well, they don't care about me then I don't care about them. You know, like, I don't like this person, <laughs> you know? So like even that, that dance of communication with our, our visual system, like it's, we, you know, we're sending so much information with our eyes. So not only are we sending information with our eyes, so the reason that a person with that piercing gaze might seem like almost like a threat is that's literally it's cueing their their nervous system is going to be more teed up to be more of a sympathetic drive, more of like like get stuff done. Either I'm going to attack or I'm going to run out of the room or I'm like, Wah. you know, that's like if you're a you know if you were a if you were out in nature and you're just spacing out, taking in the panorama, you know, you're sending the the indication to your autonomic nervous system that's like. Oh man, I'm just taking it all in. I'm chilling. Might have had a long exhalation. Might even even had a sigh. All of that's tied in to make you feel away. Suddenly, there's a mountain lion. All of your attention, your visual attention, focuses on that thing. Potential threat. You know, so now suddenly your autonomic nervous system gets gets queued up to say, okay, get ready to do a thing. You know, so when we're communicating with someone we're continually sending information back and forth. That's why like not enough eye contact is a little weird and too much eye contact can be a little weird. Um, And then we're also within that, we are communicating to ourselves with the way that we use our eyes. So if you're experiencing like something like maybe a lot of people, maybe it's just me, but notice like maybe a sensation of, like I said, like anxiety or stress or like, oh, you know, for me, I like like doing cold plunges and or working out or something like that. But the other thing would be like notice the the state of your uh, visual muscles when you're in that when you're in that experience of feeling like kind of wound up. Probably they're they're a little like piercing focused type style of of seeing. So the opportunity there is to say first it's bearing witness to yourself. Say oh wow look at that. Just even in doing that, you'll probably relax your eyes. And then from there, say, okay, cool. You know, I've got the tools now because, you know, I listened to this podcast or I read this book or, you know, I've kind of, I understand how to shift the toggles to make me feel more stimulated, more get up and at them and go, or more downregulated and calm and resting and digesting. So I can, okay, I'm going to pull the visual toggle. I'm going to, I'm going to focus in. Okay. Now I'm like, I'm hyped up, ready to go. Oh, I feel anxious. This is too much. Okay. Space out, take the whole room in. Okay. Look out the window and just, oh. Now stack that with the way that you breathe. Okay, deep inhalation, especially through the mouth, that's going to add more of that sympathetic drive. <gasps> what do you do when you're afraid? <gasps> All right, shoulders come up. Maybe your hands clasp. Maybe your mandible tightens. Like, oh, you know, and you you take this inhalation. What do you do when you're calm and relaxed? <sighs> okay, great. Tie that in the way that you use your eyes, space out. The way that you use your breath, long exhalation through the nose. You can maybe even stack in a little sigh with that as well. You know, start incorporating sound into it, um, and then say, "Okay, what's my postural patterns while I'm in this state?" And I say, "Okay, interesting. Like my shoulders are pretty tight. 
chronically, I don't know how to not be stressed, you know, and my solution is like either, you know, whatever plethora of solutions we might have. So check in and say, oh, my, my shoulders are tight. And my hands are, my hands are like clenched, you know, or my, my feet are like grabbing the ground, you know, and so starting to bear witness to what's going on there and say, okay, again, heard in this podcast, read in this book that that's probably going to send an indication to my autonomic nervous system to be in that more sympathetic drive state. Okay, shake it out. You know, and we're slowly starting to take control of our physiology and take control of our felt state just by bearing some frequent witness to ourselves and understanding the tools to create significant change as opposed to, you know, if you're if you're climbing up the the wrong ladder, people have said certain certain phrases like this. I think it's like a Tony Robbins thing. You get to the top of the of the ladder and you realize that you're on the wrong ladder. It's like, oh man, that's too bad. You know, so it's like first figuring out. It's like, what's do you actually understand how to effectively toggle these levers in your body? Um, and then from there, stack some intention on top of that and start to pull in the levers. You know, and life just becomes this big amazing experiment. Yeah, I love you that. And Sorry about the, the ladder analogy. That didn't really work exactly. You know that analogy? I have heard that analogy as well, yeah. How does it go exactly? Uh, he ties it in maybe to mountains as well, or I, I don't know. There's another piece <laughs> to it. But I, from a practical level, I think one tip I wanted to make sure I got out of you while we were talking is for a lot of the women listening, the majority of people listening are women, and especially after having kids, I feel like our bodies get put in a very like forward bent mm-hmm. type of position. Our shoulders are down because of nursing, carrying babies. Yep. And I know I've like have some hip and shoulder mobility I've been working on. So this is a somewhat self-interested question. Right. But um, other than the things we talked about, like just sitting on the ground more, sitting in more varied positions, what are some things we can do to start getting back to more natural movement patterns in hips and shoulders? Yeah. Um, well, I think looking at the body really from like a joint by joint approach, is valuable. And again, you change the environment and naturally like the ground thing is such a huge thing. Something that would be supportive continuing with the ground conversation. Um, and we can go through like specific exercises as well, but this is a specific exercise that you would just happen to do on the ground. Um, would be people call it active rest position. You know, you bring your, especially if you're like a person that's pregnant and you've been like this, like deep anterior tilt hyperlordosis, maybe you're even starting to open up, splay some of those rectus abdominis muscles. The opposite of that position would be the hips slightly flexed, laying on your back, um, bring your legs up on top of like a, the edge of a couch, or if you just have, if that doesn't quite work, if that's like too high, you can put some pillows up on a couch or I have a yoga swing hanging in my, my, uh, my house that I can literally, I'll put my knees up in it and it'll kind of like traction my low back and my knees. Uh, but place yourself in that position and just have it so that your legs are slightly lifted up. So you're really tractioning that sacrum and you're actually creating some space. So the sacrum ideally is like a, think of your sacrum, like a sailboat. And it's like, it's like floating in the ocean that is your, you know, sacroiliac joint and your lumbar spine and all that stuff. You know, so allowing that time to just be in that position of traction and you could bring up maybe like a couple little like light weights, you know, like little, like maybe 10 pound kettlebells or something, drop them down into um, the space in the front of the hips. And I have all of these videos, you know, people that's like examples of this in the, in the book. Um, we also have an online program that we can you know, provide the link for. And I have tons of free videos on YouTube and Instagram and such. But that's a really beautiful way just to be in that position. You could do like maybe six breaths from that position, or maybe like a little five minute meditation, um, bring the weight, find any place in the abdomen that feels a little bit like tense 
and just allow that weight to gently rest into that space and use the weight as feedback to breathe into that part of the abdomen that's that's been clenching for you know who knows how long um, emphasizing that pressure in and around the hips to start to open up like the the iliacus and the iliopsoas and all those like deep hip flexor muscles that's going to be a really beautiful starting point and then from there changing as far as a specific like exercise type example uh, changing the way that we're doing sit-ups you know and not being just something where you're violently like cranking your neck up into some weird dysfunctional position but from that position where you're where you're you know in this active resting position now keep your neck nice and long and start to just raise your like your shoulders like your thoracic spine up off of the ground bring your hands under your belly and just feel that contraction really specifically in those ab muscles and you're not crunching your neck up you're not doing any kind of like this other you know stuff where you're putting your body in a twisted position um, you can bring your hands up against your knees. You put a little block in between your knees, start to activate that midline, those adductor muscles. Put a block in between your knees, boop, press that together. You put your hands boop, against your knees, bring your elbows in nice and tight as well. So like in towards your body, press the hands against the knees, call it like a dead bug position. Now those, it's, it's, it's reintegrating or like reinstating the integrity of the midsection that's so valuable for people that for the most part, you know, People are walking around with like, it's, it's like sexy to have like the Brazilian booty thing where your butt's like hanging out and it's kind of like waddling, but your abdomen is totally just splaying forward. Um, and there's not a lot of strength or integrity in that position. So those would be, that's like a, a really simple, I think I might've explained that decently, but people, people can check out, like I said, we have, we have videos and such, we include links for that specific exercises, but that's a beautiful thing. And generally getting into the, the awareness of the idea as an overarching principle ribs tucking down towards the hips is typically going to be supportive for most positions. So if you have that tendency of really flaring yourself open, like flaring the ribs, when you are doing anything athletic, pretty much, or just standing in line, you know, at a bank or something like that, that's like standing as a complex position, you know, yoga, tadasana, mountain pose, like that's a, it's a, you can write a book about tadasana. Like it's a, it's a meaningful position. And for the most part, something that would help people in general, not just um, women post-pregnancy, would be to get in the habit of slightly tucking those ribs, just align them to like like rest down towards the hips. And that will create more stabilization and integrity in that like that cylinder that is your torso. Does that make sense? I know it's hard to describe exercises, but that does make sense. And for people watching, they can see you kind of explaining it. I know you have videos we can link to as well, if you don't mind sending me. Yeah, links to those course. specific ones. Those will be in the show notes. Wellnessalma.fm. Yeah, yeah if, if you go, I mean, alignpodcast.com has uh, links to all this stuff. Um, and then, yeah, in, in the book, the alignbook.com, I think is what it is. Yeah, the alignbook.com. That takes you right to the book. And so almost everything that we're explaining, at least from like an exercise perspective, is in the book. So, and then there's videos that go along with it as well. Yeah, and I'll make sure that's linked as well because I think that's the one limitation of podcasting is trying to explain somewhat visual and very somatic concepts via audio. Mm-hmm. But I know you do such a great job in the book and you also have the video. So I'll make sure people can find those. But talk a little bit more about the book before we finish up. And just sure. I know it goes so many other directions beyond what we could cover in just an hour podcast. Yeah, I'm really excited about the book. You know, it's like, I, th- I think that's something. Do you have, are most of the things that you've created that way or do you have anything that you're like, just like, 
full f yeah like i love this thing that i created do you mean like do, is that most of the of the, the books or blogs or podcasts or yes but i think I, the more i live and the more i learn i would still like add and change things now yeah but i think when i created them i was very much hell yes about them yeah and still am i think yeah that's helpful. the tendency as well you come back yeah. in five years you're like oh it's kind of a piece of crap you know which is great that means we're <laughs> well, always constantly yeah, learning. You're, you're evolving but at this point in this present state i'm like if there's one resource that i would give to someone that uh wanted to understand how to um you know, effectively use their body in daily life, you know, and get like get the most out of their body in the present moment, and then also tapping into, you know, longevity and and you know those other relevant conversations. Honestly, truly, like that is the the absolute function of this book. It's an aggregation of all of the most meaningful tools that I've gathered from you know doing three hundred and seventy odd podcast episodes and working with clients for the last eighteen years and getting to just connect with all of these amazing minds that I'm just so humbled and grateful to have access to those people over the years. Everything that I found to be absolutely the most valuable in that time frame, I put into, you know, this book, which I'm so excited about. And the way I describe it is if, if you were an alien and you had no idea how to drive the body, like you're just like, how do I work this thing? Uh, this would essentially be the user's manual to be able to tap into effective physical mechanics, but then also broaden the conversation of how to start to, you know, utilize your senses, you know, to touch and your auditory senses and visual and, you know, the other parts of, of movement to make you feel either more stimulated or, you know, awake or help you to downregulate or calm down or go to sleep. Uh, you know, I think that's a really like a, an untouched aspect, not completely untouched. You know, Andrew Huberman is a good resource for this. You know, Patrick McEwen for like breath stuff is a good resource. There's a lot of really good resources. But to be able to integrate that physical move, deadlift, pull-up world with the the way that our senses also inform our physiology, to be able to bridge those together and start to integrate them into the way that you show up in conversation or show up at the gym or show up in business or relationship and acknowledging that you're moving all day long and here's the manual on how to do it more effectively. That's the function of the Align Method. Well, I'm a huge fan. I'll definitely make sure, like I said, it's linked. I definitely recommend it. I think it has some super practical tips that also have a lot of crossover with our kids. I think in a lot of ways, kids are great movement teachers because they do many of the things you talk about naturally. And and also there's so many good tips that I think when we put these things in our kids' way and we create a better environment, we end up with happier kids. So yeah. for all the parents listening, this is a great way to like reduce the stress level in your house. Right. With and there's some super practical tips. So Yeah. And your and your kids I mean, I would I would go to you for your opinion on this, but I think your kids care a lot less about what you say than what you do and like who you are. You know, you don't you don't teach what you know, you teach what you are. You know, and so tapping the way that you change who and what you are is to start to augment your environment, you know, augment the way that you conduct yourself and live and breathe and move and think when no one's watching. And then suddenly when your kids come in the room and you have some valuable lesson to bestow upon them, they're like, cool, whatever, dad, what are you doing? Like, how do you communicate? How do you sit? How do you stand? How do you breathe? I'm attuning to, to the way that you show up. And that's literally how babies learn too. So if yeah. we do it, they will, they will follow much more than if we just say it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for doing this. Thank you for being here again. It's always such a fun conversation, such a pleasure. And to echo again, you guys check out the book. It's awesome. I have gotten a chance to preview it. Highly recommend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then, um, 
Yeah, we. Oh, I have a podcast coming out with you on Align Podcast. So whenever you release this, we can just co-release that. So if people want to continue this conversation, then Absolutely. we'll do a, a simul simul release on there. Yeah, check out both podcasts. Also, I'll send people links to your website and your book and your YouTube videos. Sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks as always to you guys for listening, sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us today. We're both so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again next time. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.